On the evening of June 23rd in the United States, millions of women went to bed with a constitutional right to choose to have an abortion. And they went to bed with the many assurances that are tied to that right to speak about getting an abortion, to organize and provide support to those seeking abortions, to search for abortion services safely online, to digitally track their menstrual cycles, to record their reproductive plans, all without too much concern about who would be interested in that information. But the very next morning, that constitutional right was removed by the Supreme Court. Immediately, you may be thinking, why are we talking about this? And it's because immediately, this has become more than a legal story. It has become a story about data privacy. This is why I spoke with two guests today, Syra Hussein, staff attorney with Electronic Frontier Foundation. Thanks so much for having us. And Cooper Quinton, senior staff technologist, also with Electronic Frontier Foundation. Yeah, hi, David. Thanks for having us here. Because those same assurances we just named have now been thrown into legal and technological turmoil. In a country potentially on pace to ban abortion, to criminalize abortion, people are now asking themselves, what surrounding activity is allowed? Can I use Google to find abortion providers out of state? Can I write on Facebook or Instagram that I will pay for people to travel to my state where abortion is protected? Should I continue texting my friends and family about my thoughts on abortion? Should I continue to use my period tracking app? Should I switch to a different app that is now promising to technologically protect my data from legal requests? Should I clamp down on all of my data? What should I do? These are not just legal questions. They are questions about the continued need to increasingly manage our own data privacy. But unlike the questions we typically ask about blocking online ad tracking or obscuring your IP address, these questions intersect with potential criminality. Will the data I leave behind be used as evidence to put me in jail. Already, behavior has changed. The weekend after the Supreme Court issued its decision, countless users scrambled to find period tracking apps that would better protect their data. And many security experts actually offered simpler, more far-reaching advice. Delete your period tracking app. My guest, Cooper Quinton, told me that those concerns are well-founded as these apps collect a dramatic amount of data that can directly reveal someone's pregnancy status, which could, in turn, be handed over to law enforcement. But unfortunately, there is more to worry about here. Period tracking apps aren't the only apps that are problematic. The fact is that the majority of apps are harvesting data about you, location data, data that you put into the apps, personal data, and that data is being fed to data brokers, to people who sell location data, to advertisers, to analytics companies. And we're building these you know, giant warehouses of data that could eventually be trawled through by law enforcement for dragnet searches. Those 
warehouses of data that Cooper mentioned, they include mundane data. In 2012, the New York Times reported that a teenager's pregnancy had been revealed to her father because of her shopping habits at Target. By analyzing the teenager's recently purchased items, Target determined that she was likely pregnant, and then, as a follow-up, sent coupons to her home for things like cribs and baby clothes. In 2016, after a woman diligently tracked her pregnancy in a pregnancy tracking app, she miscarried. But along the way, the app she used had been sharing her data with marketing groups. But her miscarriage, somehow, which she also reported, was not shared with those same groups. And so, weeks before what would have been her due date, she received a package of baby formula in the mail under a likely assumption that all pregnancies end the same way, with a baby. As she wrote in the New York Times, My husband and I had been careful to tell just close friends and family of our pregnancy. We hadn't wanted to share the news beyond that tight circle until we were past the first trimester for obvious reasons. We hadn't wanted to explain ourselves if anything had gone wrong. After spending months carefully managing our news, it was the internet, of all things, that bungled our plan. The same internet that seems to know everything about us, what TV shows we watch, which bras I prefer, what our political and religious affiliations are, had no idea that our baby had died. When this data hasn't just been used to make assumptions about people, by the way, it has also been used to target them. In 2015, the evangelical adoption agency Bethany Christian Services, which opposes abortion, found a way to send anti-abortion ads to the phones of women who physically visited Planned Parenthood locations. And they were able to do this because they were able to buy that level of granular location-based ad targeting from advertising brokers. So women inside Planned Parenthoods were getting these really intense anti-abortion ads and the, the harassment that people face outside of Planned Parenthood was then able to continue on inside Planned Parenthood as you were just sitting there scrolling your phone. I start today's episode with these real life stories, with this longer prologue before our interview to show that we're not talking today about some made-up data privacy connection. This isn't some imagined intersection. This is reality, and it is pointedly the reality now facing half the U.S. population. This is Lock and Code from Malwarebytes. I'm David Reese. Our main interview today is about overturning Roe v. Wade. And like I said, right, on June 24th, the Supreme Court decided in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization that the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion. Uh, They were effectively, with this decision, overturning the court's earlier decision in Roe v. Wade. There's a lot of legal speak in there. And so, can, Syrah, you just explain what is this, like, what does this mean for our audience? Sure. So I just want to preface this by saying that I am not a reproductive rights attorney. I, I focus on on privacy and um, surveillance, and that's a huge piece of this puzzle that, that we know will exist. Um, and there are amazing, amazing experts who are out there doing this work in this ever-changing landscape. You know, I, I'll, I'll lay out a little bit about what Roe v. Wade said. In Roe, the Supreme Court held that the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment protects against state action the right to privacy. 
And the decision to choose to have an abortion falls within that right to privacy. It sort of set up this framework by which they were weighing this right to privacy, the right to the ability to choose to have an abortion against the potential for life, the legitimate interest in protecting life. And they set up this framework that essentially said that, you know, these decisions, depending on the trimester, can be left to the person who is pregnant, can be left to the person who's pregnant as they consult with their medical professionals, or at some phase, there may be a point at which state legislatures can step in and regulate as the pregnancy goes on further. So it sort of set up this framework under the 14th Amendment. Here in Dobbs, the Supreme Court said, actually, there is no constitutional right to an abortion and overturned both Roe as well as another case called Planned Parenthood v. Casey. And in doing so, they essentially said that under the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, that there is no inherent right to an abortion and spoke about whether the right to an abortion was deeply rooted in our nation's history and traditions and ultimately decided that it was not. And so the court has returned the authority to make decisions on abortion to, quote, the people and their elected representatives, meaning the decision is now in the hands of each of the 50 state legislatures. What that practically means is that the law on being able to seek an abortion may be wildly different depending on where you live. This is something that has been unprecedented for 50 years, and it's now being left to each state to determine what laws they want to enact. And it can look wildly different whether you're in Indiana or in Illinois. And we're going to see this play out over the next several years. What you were mentioning there, right already, you know, about about these individual state laws and them being wildly different from state to state, from border to border. Let's better understand what's going on there. Um, I think there's kind of two questions here. One is that there's states that have already enacted laws and there are states that are wanting to, they've signaled that they want to do it. But the questions I have is, we've heard about state trigger laws. What are these? What are state trigger laws? And can we learn a bit about some of those more restrictive trigger laws? Sure. So state trigger laws, you know, certain states that have been basically trying to overturn Roe for, you know, the longest time or hoping that the Supreme Court would overturn Roe, started to sort of set up the foundation to make it easy for them to enact laws basically right after the passage or the the overruling of Roe that would further restrict abortion. So essentially what they said is that in the event that Roe is overturned, we're going to have a six-week ban on abortion or a 15-week ban on abortion. It was mostly around when the cutoff point would be. So for some of these states, as soon as the Dobbs decision came out, their laws were automatically enacted in their state or the laws were enacted with a delay. So some of them said within 30 days of, of the um, Supreme Court overruling Roe is when these will, will be enacted. What we've seen is that in some states, this has already led to, some, to legal action where people go in with emergency petitions, essentially saying that the law is unconstitutional, and then judges have started to take up these decisions. So we've seen in a few different states where judges have said, actually, this law, uh, we're going to halt this law because we believe that it is not constitutional. 
And so it is it is messy. I, I think that that is quite frankly, the, the underlying legal opinion that we have here, that this is a messy, messy process. So that's exactly what's what's happening with these state trigger laws. And I think you'll be able to see more of them play out and sort of what it looks like on the ground as they, they either begin to go into effect or they're blocked from going into effect. Do we have any numbers on like how many states are enacting these trigger laws or, or how many are on the, you know, like on the calendar for being enacted within 30 days? Yeah, I'm not 100% sure about that. What I do know is that it's about half of the states that are passing some sort of law that will either be a trigger law or perhaps subsequent legislation that is trying to further restrict abortion. We have in Texas SB8, which actually allows private parties to sue individuals who are helping what they call aiding and abetting abortion, basically trying to assist somebody in procuring an an abortion, perhaps driving them to an abortion clinic. And there are civil penalties associated with that law. We've heard of it infamously as the bounty hunter law. So we know that there is sort of this ever-changing legal landscape where you're going to see trigger laws being pushed, potentially going to effect, potentially blocked, and then you're also going to see a smattering of other types of legislation. And, you know, quite frankly, states are looking to see what each other do in order to see, like, you know, what is what is out there, what is possible. And then you'll start to see copycat legislation take place in some of the other states that want to think about ways of, of criminalizing abortion or people who, who help um, provide abortions. This all sounds like you said, like... <sighs> Like, it sounds messy at the very least, right? Is there like an analog for this ever happening in our history? Because like, I'm trying to think of things where it's like, oh, yeah, states have their own laws for things. And like on this show, we've talked about like data breach notification laws, you know, like the most mundane thing I could like compare this to. Um, And like states have their own and there's there's 50 out there for each individual state. And like they kind of line up and sometimes they kind of don't. And it's like, oh, you have X many days if there's a data breach that affects, you know, Y number of clients. But this is a much bigger deal, it feels like. And I'm just kind of wondering, like, is this a big question here? But with states doing their own things and with some laws being held up by judges because they're finding them, you know, at first that they're unconstitutional. Is this like sustainable I think that's a very good question. I don't think I'm equipped to answer that question. And I believe that this is what legal experts and reproductive rights experts have been warning about for years, that our system is not equipped to handle issues like this, even with Roe v. Wade in effect. It still allowed so much room for different states to make different laws on exactly when the state legislature would be able to step in, what pregnant people could do in terms of seeking an abortion, what types of services could be provided. This has been the subject of litigation for the last 50 years, even though Roe established that there was a constitutional right to choose to have an abortion. And so now all of that has been undone. And the entire question of whether somebody can seek an abortion or somebody can help provide abortion services has been left entirely to the states. So it's essentially legal chaos. There are many, many people much smarter and more knowledgeable than I on this subject who have pontificated about some of the the issues that are going to come up. But I think even they can only see a limited amount of what's going to happen. 
And uh, I think that this can very quickly spiral out of control in terms of the types of issues that come up. You know, we focus on data privacy here at EFF and protecting people's digital rights. And even just our corner of work that pertains to, you know, abortion access and allowing this right to privacy, it encompasses so many different things in the type of work that we do. So I imagine that this is going to touch on all kinds of areas of the law and these questions aren't going to be easily answered. With that, right, like understanding, I think you put it so well, right? It's essentially legal chaos. I think a lot of that chaos is leading to a lot of questions about, you know, who can be arrested for what behavior. And it's like hard to understand because it seems like we don't know. But I still wanted to ask, you know, under these new state laws that are cropping up, that are coming into effect, do we have an understanding of like who can be arrested and for what behavior specifically? And, and, you know, a smattering of things I'm thinking about, is it, you know, researching an abortion? Is it providing information that could guide someone towards an abortion clinic? Is it like speaking online and saying, I will help you? Like, do we have any compass that will help us understand, yes, that can get you in trouble. No, that cannot. You know, I I feel like I keep coming back to this answer, but so much of this remains unknown. And undoubtedly, there will be legal battles over the next several years on these very issues. Some of the issues that are now coming up in this post-Roe world are things like whether a state has the ability to extend its reach beyond its jurisdiction namely whether they're able to criminalize a resident that travels to a different state in order to seek an abortion. That's something that, you know, states have started to explore. That's something that has recently started to pop up in in recent media articles. Um, Another question is whether one state must abide by a warrant or subpoena for information related to abortion services that's issued by another state where, you know, the second state recognizes it as a crime and the first state doesn't. So these are all questions that I think are are open that are going to be battled over the next few years. But I don't think that we have any easy answers now. And this is sort of, it's one thing to overturn precedent for 50 years. Uh, that's been in effect for 50 years. And now we're going to see a lot of these fights take place. And I don't think anybody has the answers and can give you an answer on these questions at this moment. Being as difficult as it is to predict the future, understandably, right? We don't know. We've never been here. I wanted to understand, though, is there anything in the past that we can use to understand, right? Not necessarily, you know, what behavior will get someone arrested, but whether there's like an appetite for that. Do we know of any states in particular where they have taken action against individuals seeking abortions, or we've also heard horror stories of people being investigated for a miscarriage, which at a certain stage in pregnancy is like impossible to differentiate between an abortion. And I, I want to know, yeah, do we have any prologue here where we can say, yeah, that state has shown, again, like, like an appetite for prosecution? So I can't speak to states themselves that have an appetite, but I can share some things that we've seen in the past that may help us determine and and figure out what's going to happen in the near future. So we know that there is some appetite for criminal prosecution. Prior to the Dobbs decision, this often took place against people who were pregnant and maybe didn't conform to the norms of what society believes is acceptable behavior for pregnant people. So for example, there have been cases where individuals have had miscarriages or stillbirths, 
and there was evidence that that they were involved in some sort of drug use and they were prosecuted as a result of that. There's a wonderful organization called the National Advocates for Pregnant Women, and they have compiled examples of what these criminal cases have looked like previously. We don't know what the landscape will look like in this post-real world, but as a privacy attorney, I'm deeply concerned about the surveillance tools that law enforcement will use to investigate alleged abortions. Prior to this decision, in these cases that I mentioned where people were prosecuted for self-managing abortions or for having miscarriages or stillbirths, it was most often an informant, a hospital worker, a family member, friends, an intimate partner that provided that information to police. So, you know, it wasn't necessarily technologically based. This was more like the traditional, I tell my friend, hey, I'm going through this issue, and that friend decides to tell law enforcement about it. We also know that law enforcement have used surveillance tools secondarily, but more of the ones that we would expect, more like examining uh, Google search history or text messages to uncover uh, evidence of abortion after they've already been basically tipped off by somebody else. So that's the most traditional thing that we've seen. And we at EFF are obviously concerned about these issues, as well as what may be on the horizon when it comes to the infrastructure that currently exists that didn't exist in the pre-row world in terms of the amount of surveillance technology that exists and what that could potentially mean for now in this post-row world when we're talking about the tools that people who want to investigate and prosecute abortions have. There's no like better segue than that, right? Talking about things like like Google searches, talking about new surveillance tools that are available that were not available previously. And so let's take that moment to focus on technology, um, because right after the decision came out, there was a lot of speak online, uh, kind of immediately, you know, about like, delete your period tracking app. Um, and things about like, if you're attending a protest this weekend or the weekends after, uh, buy a burner phone, things like that, you know, a, a disposable phone that isn't isn't your primary phone. And particularly on something like like deleting your period tracking app, I saw that over and over and over and over again. And I'm not saying that it is bad advice. I'm not here to question the advice itself. But it did seem to me like it was an oversimplification, like it was one thing. And you said already, Syrah, you know, we're looking at things like Google searches. And so I wanted, again, steer the conversation towards technology and ask you, Cooper, away from like just deleting a period tracking app, what are we working with here? Like what other forms of data can reveal that someone is seeking an abortion or had an abortion? Uh, I'm trying to like broaden it out and understand what's at stake here. What is the data that could reveal these things? Yeah, the advice to delete your period tracking app or use a burner phone, I think just completely misses the mark. It's somehow both an oversimplification and an overcomplication and just fails to completely, completely fails to understand the threats that people seeking abortions are actually facing. If you talk to the people on the front lines of the abortion fight, they'll tell you that the way that people are being prosecuted right now is first and foremost through informants, friends, family, spouses, medical professionals who disagree with their decision deciding to notify law enforcement. 
And then we see secondary evidence come into play. Again, as Sarah said, things like Google search history, social media posts, text messages, messages on social media, emails, things like that. Those pieces of information are what's being used to build a case and convict somebody, typically after they've already been informed on. So deleting period tracking apps or telling somebody to use a burner really isn't going to help here. Also, the, the burner advice specifically, I just want to address, it's really an absurd piece of advice that is given very flippantly by security professionals sometimes. Um, and I'm absolutely fed up with it. It's actually really difficult to set up a burner, a proper burner phone and maintain the operational security around it that, that you need. I think that people just need to stop giving this advice. Like most of the time for most people's threat models, I think that putting your phone in airplane mode, like if you're going to a protest, is probably good enough. Making sure that you've turned off biometrics if you're going to be in a high-risk situation where you think you're likely to be arrested, that's probably good enough. Like you don't need to go buy a burner phone. And, and insisting that people should buy a burner phone when they're going to be seeking out an abortion is just ludicrous. That's, that's not a realistic thing to ask people to do. I'm glad you called it both an oversimplification, but also an overcomplication. The smattering of advice, uh, just the volume of it, it follows the same line of thinking that I think we've had for a really long time in the U.S. in particular, that like we have to manage more and more and more things, and we have to do more and more and more and more. And we're just becoming managers of personal data for like things that we don't see happening. And it's hard to do that. Like it's, it's asking, I think a lot of people in difficult situations and people not even in difficult situations, folks who are not seeking an abortion. Uh, I think it's doing too much, like it's asking too much, but I wanted to go back to something you were saying, you know, like we see a lot of this, you know, one, it's coming from informants and two, it's like the unsexy stuff. It's like Google searches. It's like, it's Google search history. It's, it's emails, it's social media posts. With that, are we telling folks who are seeking an abortion that they should stop using Google, that they should stop posting things on Facebook or or TikTok? What should folks do? Yeah, it's a great question. I think I want to I want to address two things. One is that you were kind of getting at is the idea where we're putting this on individuals to maintain their own perfect OPSEC and perfect information security. And it's ridiculous. Like we've built this, the difference between now and the last time that abortion was illegal in the United States, you know, over 50 years ago, was that there wasn't this giant surveillance panopticon that we've since built. And to put the blame on individuals saying like, well, you need to have better OPSEC, is missing the point. We've built this giant surveillance panopticon. That is the actual harm here. So what we actually need is a lot more pressure on companies to start dismantling this surveillance machine, You know, to stop feeding the surveillance machine, to stop collecting massive amounts of data on their users and storing that data forever. There needs to be a lot more pressure on companies to start protecting their users. We needed to, and EFF has been yelling about this for decades now. And you know, the best time to start dismantling the surveillance panopticon was before it was even being built, right? And the second best time is right now. So I think that putting pressure on individuals to make these changes is missing the forest for the trees. That said, 
there are things that we think people can do to protect themselves that are relatively low barriers to entry. I totally understand what you're saying there. Like the, it's missing the forest for the trees. And there are big structural things that we can try to dismantle. And I think that we should focus our efforts on those things. But in the time being, like you were saying, there are things that are sort of reasonable things to do uh, for individuals who are in this situation, things that are not blame focused, things that are not buy a burner phone. And so you were mentioning those things. What are those things? First and foremost, I recommend that people check out our surveillance self-defense guides, which can be found at ssd.eff.org. And we have guides up for people seeking abortions, people going to protests. We have guides on operational security or OPSEC and much, much more. I also recommend that people check out the Digital Defense Fund at digitaldefensefund.org. They're a group that's on the front line of digital security in the abortion access space. And they have some really fantastic guides up as well. As far as you know, e- easy things that people can do right now, I think at, at a high level, the advice is to minimize the amount of data that you're storing, uh, minimize the amount of data that you're sharing publicly and the number of people that you give information to. So this is things like, don't talk to police without your lawyer present. Um, Don't consent to a search of your phone if police ask you to take a look at your phone. If you can use disappearing messages, use something like Signal with disappearing messages to talk about anything related to your abortion or healthcare. If you can, use a privacy-preserving search engine like DuckDuckGo that won't keep a log of your searches. And yeah, don't post about crimes on social media. Like remember that the remember that the things that you say on social media can easily be discovered by law enforcement or just informants, vigilantes who don't like what you're doing. And you know, limit who you tell, you know, limit your circle of trust. That's the high-level advice. I do recommend that people check out our surveillance self-defense guides if they can. I'll just chime in here as an attorney to say that don't post about your crimes on social media is evergreen advice, and you should always follow that. (laughs) I laugh because, like, to me, I'm like, why would you do that, right? But I'm missing something here. I'm forgetting even the thing that I was saying earlier in the show, which is that, again, Activity that was not criminal one evening could be criminal the morning after. And so these things were not crimes before. They were not. And we can conjure up this image like, oh, you know, don't post about your crimes online. Things like, you know, don't post about how you're planning to rob a bank or something like that. But it's not that. It's like, don't say the things that used to be okay. And that's difficult. That's really hard I think for folks to understand and to grasp. And like you said, it's, it's also quite poignant. Like you were saying, Cooper, to, you have to limit your circle of trust. That is difficult. That is a hard thing to do. That's a hard thing to grapple with and reconcile. I also wanted to talk about, we don't have to go too in the weeds, I think, but I wanted to address like a couple of tools that I've also seen online. And, and I don't know if there's any truth to them. I don't know if they're, you know, if it's warranted. And so I'm thinking of things where I see people being like, use a VPN or use Tor or use XYZ. And it feels like sometimes we get into these situations where people are like, I'm going to throw a bunch of tools into the conversation. And I just wanted to get your understanding of that, Cooper, like all of these tools being used. Is there, is there a left or right 
you know? Is there like a, do I know what to use, what to not use? And how do I discern, I guess, good advice from like advice that doesn't actually apply to me? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's a, it's a hard one to answer. I'll start by saying that I think that as technologists and security people, we like to try to apply technology solutions to social problems. And that that's almost never the answer. A new app is almost never the answer to a new social problem. In this case, the social problem being something that has been completely legal for the past 50 years is now suddenly criminalized in at least half the U.S. states. I think that if you're giving security or technology advice right now and you haven't talked to or listened to people that are actually on the front lines of this battle, I think you need to step back and stop giving that advice and start listening to the people that are actually in this fight, the people that are actually helping people get abortions, the people that are actually seeking abortions, and figure out what the threat models actually are. A VPN is a very useful tool for a very specific set of circumstances. And it's not going to stop somebody from informing on you. A VPN isn't going to stop law enforcement from unlocking your phone and scrolling through your messages to find text messages that you were sending about going to get an abortion. So as far as tools that are useful, There may be some tools that are useful in some circumstances, but I think that the more useful advice is around limiting the amount of information that you're putting out there. And the more useful advice is around operational security. What's not useful advice is saying, just go get some operational security, uh, which is another kind of flippant comment that I see a lot. Yeah. You've mentioned operational security a couple of times already. um, And I've, you know, we've seen it mentioned quite a bit in these conversations. What is that? <laughs> what is it in, yeah. and what is good operational security? So operational security or OPSEC broadly means not leaking information about what you're doing. It's a term that comes from the military, which I'm not a huge fan of, but it's a very useful term in this case. So in this case, it would mean not leaking information that you're seeking an abortion or supporting abortions or providing services. And again, the high level advice here, like the highest level of this is just to limit who has information about this, keep things on a need to know basis, limit how much information about this you are storing on your phone right? Or on your other devices so that even if somebody ordered access to your phone, there would be a small of an amount of evidence as possible. That's the basis of operational security. I think it's important to recognize also that it kind of goes against what a lot of people have been, like the environment we've been raised in, you know, particularly in the past like 20 or so years where one, you know, there's a, a desire and a push to share things, you know, to share a lot of stuff online. But two, it's not just to share what you're going through, but to make statements, to, to share things and say, like, look, I will help you. I will help I will help you get that abortion. I will pay for it. I will I will provide room and board. I will bring you into my home. And it's difficult to say that that's dangerous in a way that's actually might harm more folks than do any good. If you want to build a whisper network, you can't shout about it. <laughs> Yeah, I've I've heard a lot of people saying things like that. And hopefully for the most part, I think they're coming from a place of good intentions. 
But yeah, they're putting a big target on themselves, a big spotlight on anybody who reaches out to them when there are already networks of people that will help people get abortions that have been doing this very quietly for decades now in some cases and are very good at this. And those are much better organizations to be doing this. They understand the security risks. I understand why people want to be very loud about this right now. And I think there are good ways to be very loud about how upset you are about how unjust this is. I think there are really good ways to go do that. But I think that saying on social media that shouting, um, like you said, I think that shouting that you have a whisper network is not the way to go about this. You know, I think part of the reason people are doing this and part of what's so hard right now is that ever since social media has become ubiquitous in our culture, we've been incentivized to sort of shout about everything we do, right? Like the culture has shifted to be one of always saying what you're doing. And like, and and we've, you know, spent 20 years building this giant surveillance machine, you know, and now suddenly we're in a, we're in a place where that surveillance machine will absolutely be used to criminalize people. And it has been for a long time, but suddenly it, it, it's suddenly it occurs to people that this surveillance machine could be used to criminalize a lot of people, the majority of people. I wanted to wrap up here. We've been talking about like really big things like, you know, the surveillance panopticon. Um, we've been talking about small things that individuals can do. I wanted to know and put it to both of you, uh, you both work for EFF. You look and you know analyze uh, tons of legislation that's coming out throughout the country and throughout multiple states. Are there any proposals out there from lawmakers to limit what is happening, to provide tighter controls? What's on the table right now? So right now, there is a bill in the U.S. House called My Body, My Data that's been introduced by Representative Sarah Jacobs. And that legislation restricts companies from collecting, using, retaining, or disclosing reproductive health information that isn't essential to providing the service that someone asks them for. And in addition to putting these restrictions on company data processing, it also provides people with necessary rights to access and delete their reproductive health information, including things like requiring companies to publish a privacy policy so that people can understand what information the company is processing and why. And it also allows the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, some authority to hold accountable companies that break their public promises. One of the things that we really like about this bill is that it also allows people to take on companies that violate their privacy directly through what's known as a private right of action, meaning that they themselves can bring the lawsuit and they don't have to wait for something like a state attorney general or some other uh, governmental agency to bring that lawsuit. And then finally, it sets a floor and not a ceiling. So it sets a minimum standard, but it allows states that want to go further in protecting data privacy and requiring companies to keep this information confidential to go further in that. So it's something that we're supporting and it's in the um, U.S. House of Representatives. I find something like that um, comes at such a opportune moment because, you know, again, with the Dobbs decision, um, we saw period tracking apps kind of respond very quickly to try and roll out features, try and say, hey, we're going to we're going to put end to end encryption in this or we're going to roll out like anonymous mode. Um, pretty much things where these companies are saying themselves, they're taking it upon themselves to 
try and create systems whereby if they do get a request from law enforcement, they can say, well, we don't have that data or we don't have it in any meaningful way that it can tell you what you're looking for or you can identify someone that you're looking for or the behavior attached to that person. And that's sort of like, well, is your app doing it? Like if it is or if it isn't, like, again, it's the continued management of your own safety. And we already do so much of that. And so it seems like, you know, there is some legislation to perhaps change that. Syra Cooper, I wanted to thank you again for coming on today's show and for explaining all of this. Uh, It is a huge topic. Uh, It is difficult. It is nuanced. Um, So again, thank you so much. Thanks for having us, David. Yeah, thank you for having us. To our listeners at home, we'll talk to you again in two weeks. Until then, stay tuned and stay safe. And remember, you can read all our cybersecurity coverage on Malwarebytes Labs. And please, if you like what you heard today, follow and review our show. Uh, finally, our intro music is by Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com, and our outro music is by Woa from Unminus.com. Today's show was edited by Eric Johnson from LightningPod.fm. Thank you, folks. <laughs>